Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is an award-winning journalist and author. Wesley Lowry has reported for the Los Angeles Times, the Boston Globe, CBS News, and in 2016 won a Pulitzer Prize as a lead on the Washington Post's Fatal Force Project. He's the author of They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. Wesley Lowry, welcome to Words Matter. Thanks so much for having me. So we want to talk about your latest project with LeBron James and Tiffany Cross, More Than a Vote, Our Voices, Our Vote, in just a minute. And, and we'll put the Audible link in our show notes for this episode so our listeners can also follow. But we want to start with something that you wrote back in June for The Atlantic, why Minneapolis was the breaking point. You've covered racial justice issues and the movement for Black Lives for much of the past decade. You've spent literally hundreds of nights covering protests of fatal police actions. So what changed with the murder of George Floyd and the public reaction to that horrific event? Sure. What changed and what polling shows us and tells us changed is that white people began thinking that this was a systemic problem and not just a bunch of individual one-off anecdotes. That when you look at the historic polling on these issues and these questions. And when you go back to the demonstrations and the protests previously, you had largely black protests that grew relatively organically that were made up of people who'd had enough of this, who had seen time and time again and were exhausted and enraged by it. And there was certainly support and there were allies and there was a kind of coalition on the political left that was multiracial around these issues. But the reality was your run-of-the-mill white American, no matter their politics, did not feel this issue with an urgency and carried a skepticism of whether or not this was truly a systemic problem, whether real sweeping change was necessary to the criminal justice system or if more makeshift solutions, putting a few cameras on cops, charging an officer here or there, might uh, resolve this. What we see in the polling, at least initially, following George Floyd's death, which, by the way, follows the deaths of Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, is that for the first time in the polling, white Americans, certainly liberal white Americans' beliefs, begin to come more in line with black Americans' beliefs, where this is a systemic problem that requires sweeping change. I think that that frustration and that anger is what prompts so many people out into the streets in those early days. And while there certainly has been some backslide in the polling, we still do see a significant uptick as it relates to white Americans who believe there are truly systemic problems. 
So in that Atlantic piece, you quoted a tweet by Colin Kaepernick, and it was, quote, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down, and when they do, they will land on deaf ears because your violence has brought this resistance. And you went on to compare Kaepernick's words to James Baldwin's in 1963, his masterwork, The Fire Next Time, and Langston Hughes' 1940 poem, Warning. Talk a little bit about that in the context of the struggle for racial justice in this country for the last hundred years. Sure. Well, and and prior to that, Frederick Douglass, that much of our public conversation around Black fight for liberation, for equality, for equity, historically has been framed around, well, but they shouldn't be violent about it, right? Right as opposed to framed around the violence that has been perpetrated against Black Americans. And so when you take a tweet like Colin Kaepernick's, which in the initial moments was being interpreted by the media as remarkably radical, and how could he say something like this, that we have the violence coming, and it's about our violence, and it was in line with the vast majority of mainstream Black political thought for as long as there has been Black political thought in this country, that when you use violence to oppress a, a set of people, you cannot be surprised when they respond with violence. That when we have conversations about violent uprisings, riots, stores being burned down, right? I always try to remind myself as a reporter and a writer showing up in these places that the violence didn't begin when the first store got looted. The violence began when the police killed someone in the street. That was the first violent act that began this cavalcade of acts. And I I think that is important for us to understand that well, what we are seeing is violence that is arising in response to violence. And, And then again, it should be unsurprising to us when people respond in frustration when their attempts at peaceful reform go unhurt. Wesley, you and I haven't talked about this, but I was in Ferguson for quite some time when I worked with Anderson Cooper, and your articles were always the first thing I read every morning when I woke up before we went out on the interviews in Ferguson. And I just can't express to our listeners enough how your work has greatly impacted the conversation and understanding the history of the racial divide we still find ourselves in today. And something striking and something I think about a lot, Michael Brown was shot six years ago. And your work on this is is a lot of the reason we're having these conversations. And on this note, it's the day before the election. We're already seeing record voter turnout across the country in places like Georgia and Texas, where you've covered the movement for Black lives and the battle against systemic racism. And in fact, Texas's early voting has already surpassed 2016's total voter turnout. I think a lot of people never thought they'd be saying all eyes are on Texas, but they may be saying it tomorrow and beyond. Is there a correlation between this historic turnout and the reaction to the most recent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor? Ahmed Aubrey and so many more Black Americans who've been killed? You know, I think there probably is some connection. Uh, now, that connection comes in the context of what is a remarkably historic election for a number of reasons. The first is that this is the first election in 100 years under a pandemic, where 
there are a lot of people reasonably concerned about whether or not it will be safe to show up on election day. And so it is unsurprising to me that we've seen such an increase in early voting and mail-in voting. And, and it seems, you know, every indication seems to be that those trends will continue into election day. But we would and should expect a lot of people voting earlier in more non-traditional methods in a year when there are questions about the safety of voting in person on the day of the election. Beyond that, though, we live in a remarkably politically polarized time where we have a president of the United States who has intense support from a subsection of the population and who is intensely despised by a larger subset of the population. And, and, and there are folks who, if you think about the political center and the political left on any number of issues, long before you get to George Floyd, you have the energy of the Women's March and the idea that an unrepentant uh, sexual harasser, sexual assaulter would would be elected president. You have massive climate marches and pressure around climate change and the urgency uh, to address climate change as the president took steps to undo previous efforts like the Paris Accord. You had the massive uh, turnout for the March for Our Lives and the gun control movement following Parkland. You had massive street protests following child separations at the border and the children being taken from the parents and put in cages. And so there's been almost no moment of the Trump presidency when there have not been people in the streets, that it's gone from one movement to the next movement to the next movement. And I think that speaks to the extent to which such a significant chunk of the population is so infuriated by what's going on in this moment. And I think that both leads to the intense response we see to things like the George Floyd video. You've got a lot of people who've got their shoes and their signs ready to be out in the streets because they, they were there two weeks ago. But beyond that, I think that general atmosphere of frustration uh, factors in. You've got a lot of people out there who are not going to miss the chance to vote this time around. They're not going to not call people, not phone bank. Uh, there is a real frustration among many, many people and an urgency, feeling like they want a change in the administration. And, vice, and, and on the other hand, a, a set of people who feel very strongly that they have to reward Donald Trump with four more years. And so again, we exist in a world where I'm not sure that there is an, a real significant chunk of undecided voters anywhere. It's, it's a bunch of people who've made up their minds, and it's how many of each set of people are going to show up. So I think that's a perfect segue to talk about more than a vote, our voices, our vote. If you could just talk about the project a little bit and what you and your co-host Tiffany Cross set out to do here. Sure. And so this was a really interesting project. It was a 90-minute one-time special for Audible. And we partnered with More Than a Vote, which is an organization run by LeBron James and Maverick Carter, his business partner, uh, that aims to address systemic barriers to voter access, right? This is not a voter registration organization. This is an organization that is about, wait, is there an issue with people having access to the ballot box? How can we do work that opens up more polling places? How can we pay off people's fines if they have a prior conviction, right? That, that's looking to say, if there are still systemic barriers to voting, how do we undo those barriers? And how do we use the power of celebrity, the power of athletes, the power of money to do that? And so they'd approached Tiffany and I a little while back saying, look, we want to do kind of an educational one-off podcast. We want to look at these issues. 
you guys would have the space to do whatever you want journalistically. Obviously, we care about this. And so Tiffany and I got together and just started talking about what, what something like this might look like. And we quickly decided, we thought that there were two or three different sections of this. The first being the history. It's a good excuse to look at the history of voting rights in the United States of America. I think that across all history, very often we have too simplistic of an idea of what reality looks like and has been. So we we imagine a world where the founding fathers thought, oh, well, everyone's going to vote and this is what's going to happen. And we overlook the fact that the founding fathers only wanted rich white property owners voting. And something like only 6% of the population at our founding was allowed to vote. Or we think, well, but then the 19th Amendment passed. And, and we forget that for Black women across the South, that women's suffrage didn't mean anything to them because they still faced poll taxes and Jim Crow laws and voter suppression. And so I handled a big chunk of the section where we looked through and talked through the history of voting rights, interviewed Ruth May Harris, who is a member of a group called the Freedom Singers, they traveled to the various protests and provided basically the soundtrack. Talked to Dr. Tommy Smith, a famed civil rights icon who you know held his fists along up with uh, John Carlos at the 68 Olympics. And then Tiffany handled a lot of the kind of contemporary conversation, laws that are being passed, polling places that are being closed, and attempts in modern day politics to restrict the franchise. And we had some other great conversations, you know, people like Desmond Mead, who's been leading the fight in Florida and elsewhere to return voting rights to people who've been formerly incarcerated. Latasha Jackson, who runs Black Votes Matter and so does a lot of voter mobilization across the country. And so, again, the thought here was how do we, in a time when so many people are so mobilized, so spun up, care about this, are engaging, how do we provide them kind of a journalistic education about these issues? And how, and how might that help encourage them to make it to the polls uh, in, for the election, but also to better think about these ideas of suppression and, and access? Yeah. And I have to say, you did such a brilliant job because you did combine so many of those powers with Hollywood, with historians, with academia, sports, you know, and the music was incredible from Leon Bridges to Andra Day to, like you said, uh, Ruth Mae Harris. Some of the other main things that really stuck out with me in terms of the history were the stories from Georgia, Wisconsin, South Carolina, Texas, and my home state of Ohio that felt like voter suppression stories from the 60s. But these were stories from the past few months. Can you break down the suppression for those who haven't listened to More Than a Vote yet? And we know they will after <laughs> listening to this. But can you explain how voter suppression actually works and a little bit of that history? Of course. Again, one thing that's important for us to remember is that sometimes I think people take for granted, especially liberally minded people, take for granted that everyone thinks it's a good thing if more people vote. Uh, that's not true that one of the chief ideological struggles in our politics is about how expansive democracy should be. Who counts? Who gets to vote? What is the obligation of the government to make that easy? Or should it be difficult? Right? And that there's a subsection of the population, and it has always been this way, that believes it should be difficult to vote, that there should be barriers. And so what you look at when you look across our, our politics and across our states is you see steps being taken by various state governments, various elected officials, various election officials, 
often done in the name of security or safety that in effect makes it more difficult for some types of people to access ballot boxes. And so what we've seen in recent years, for example, has been a wave of voter ID laws across the country that, that, have, that have sprung up in the years since 2013. And what that has done is it has made it more difficult for any number of people to access the ballot box. We've seen things like automatic voter purges, where if you haven't voted in a certain number of years, you're automatically removed from the registration list. And they can do that either automatically or they can send you a postcard and, and you have to return it. But if you're someone who is poor, who is moving frequently, and that's why you, perhaps you haven't voted at your precinct, you may never get this card, show up to vote, and now not be able to cast your ballot. We see the closing of polling places playing out all across the country. And we also see the aggressive prosecution of people who have attempted to vote, but for whatever reason have been ineligible. So there are cases where if you owe the government money from a fine, you're ineligible to vote. Or, or in cases where if you have a felony conviction, you're ineligible to vote. We have cases where people are accidentally voting if they cannot and in facing significant prosecution for those steps. And so again, what we're seeing here is a system that doesn't necessarily make it easier to vote and in fact actively attempts to make it harder to vote for any number of people. Yeah, I, I just want to add on to that. Like where I teach at Belmont University, we actually had all incoming freshmen. They had to watch the movie 13th by Ava DuVernay. And I think that along with this project just lays out so much that you don't learn in history class and all of these issues that are compounding the suppression and compounding the vote. I do think that's so important. And that film really struck my students who were watching it and laid out something that's been going on for decades and I think that's exactly what your project has done as well. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Again, I think that one of the mistakes we make is we think, we like to think that these things are historical. Right? We like to think about what would we do if we were alive during the civil rights movement? What would we do if, if we were, all these things are still happening, right? That we have our own struggles. There are our own movements. There are our own contemporary questions about what's happening. And, and again, we, we do live in a time where there are any number of people who do not have ready access to the ballot box. And that is something that makes our democracy less equal. Uh, it means that different people have different say. And, and all of this is before we even talk about, you know, I'm sitting in Washington, D.C. right now. When I cast my ballot, uh, I won't be casting a ballot for voting senators or a voting member of Congress. And my vote, in fact, matters less than that of many other people, right? And, and I think that these questions are so important in this moment because they speak to a chief concern and theme in our politics right now, which is, which is about the fairness and the legitimacy of the way our government works. These concerns about the legitimacy of how our democracy works, be that about statehood for places like DC or Puerto Rico, be it about the electoral college and the fact that we've spent years under presidents who won fewer votes than the person who they ran against, uh, be it the way that the Senate works and the Supreme Court, right? There are all types of conversations in our politics currently that are fundamentally about legitimacy. Is the system fair? Are the rules as written fair. And voting is one of the ways that I think uh, this comes up frequently, that for many people, no matter their politics, they think, yeah, just because if you committed a crime doesn't mean we should take your right to vote for life. Or no, we shouldn't be making it more difficult for people to vote. And so you're seeing, in some ways, a bipartisan and cross-partisan coalition around some of these issues, even as there are active attempts being made 
by any number of folks to restrict the right to vote and the access to the ballot box. To your point, Wesley, about a lot of folks like to think of this as a historic issue rather than more recent. One thing that particularly interests me as a lawyer is looking historically how these voter suppression techniques and methods for limiting who can access the ballot more easily and should it be hard, how they do get ingrained historically and recently in our laws as a part of our institutions and systemically throughout our legal system, things like poll taxes and the the felony voter laws that we we just saw in Florida play out where the, the state passed a constitutional amendment giving people who had been convicted of felonies the right to vote and franchising them. And then a GOP state legislature made making them have to pay any fine before they can actually vote in that state. And most recently, our Supreme Court decided a case in 2013. Our listeners have also heard me talk about this case, but it's hugely important, Shelby County v. Holder, where the Supreme Court essentially gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act that paved the way for a lot of these, particularly in the Deep South, like in my home state of Georgia, but other states, allow states to do things like purge voter rolls, as we saw in the most recent gubernatorial race in Georgia, but also change polling locations at the very last minute or close down a huge number of polling locations, largely in minority communities. And and so these things that we're talking about are not just actions that folks are taking. They are entrenched in our laws and deeply ingrained in our, our legal system in all parts of it, in the courts, but also in the legislatures. And it's historic, but uh, is continuing to play out. And to your point, you know, we're seeing the results of that 2013 Supreme Court opinion, I think, in a number of the examples you gave of, of what's happening in this year's election, preventing folks from getting to the polls. Definitely, certainly. So you mentioned, Tommy, because I actually wanted to ask you about this. So in teaming up with LeBron, he and and many professional athletes, both male and female, they've been instrumental in opening up polling stations at sports arenas across the country. And one of the interviews that um, particularly stuck out to me was the discussion with ESPN journalist Maria Taylor, not just because she's a fellow University of Georgia grad, go dogs, Mm. but you guys talked about sports and race and politics. um, And she brought up Tommy Smith. And you interviewed Tommy Smith. And for those who don't know, just explain who he is a little bit more, what he did in 1968 and how he sees today's battles as an extension of the work that he was doing half a century ago. Sure. Tommy Smith was in 1968, the fastest man in the world. He was a Olympic sprinter for the United States of America, was expected to win the 200 meter dash but was involved in the Olympic Committee for Human Rights, which was an activist organization of athletes who initially had wanted to boycott the 68 Olympics. There was frustration with what was happening in the States, frustration with apartheid South Africa, frustration with human rights violations across the world. And so initially, a group of of athletes in the States were going to boycott the Olympics. Ultimately, the Olympic Project for Human Rights decides, we're going to go to the Olympics. But each athlete can demonstrate or protest in whatever way they want to. So Tommy Smith is expected to win this gold medal. He's racing. Uh, Next to him is John Carlos, another American, another Black American. He's racing. Um, And a man named Peter Bergen from Australia. The race goes off. 
Tommy ends up winning the race, gets the gold. Peter Bergen from Australia gets the silver. And then John Carlos gets the bronze medal. And when it's time for them to take the podium to, to have their medals draped over them, Tommy Smith and John Carlos both wear one black leather glove and, and raise it up into a, pa- a black power salute. They raise their fist up. While Peter Bergen, the Australian, wanted to participate as well. And so he didn't think it'd be appropriate for him to raise his fist up being a white guy from Australia. And so he borrowed a pin, a Olympic Project for Human Rights pin, and wore it uh, there on stage as well. Now, 68 was the first Olympics that was relatively live broadcast. Right. And so this was a moment that was seen across the world pretty quickly. And and so initially Tommy Smith didn't think much was gonna be made of this, but by the time he gets back to the States, he's found himself caught in a complete firestorm around this. That people say saying it was disrespectful, that he was militant, that he hated the flag or he hated his country or he should just stay out. And, and so it became one of these remarkable moments in history that lays the groundwork for a lot of the sports and protests and demonstration that we see now. That here you had a Black athlete using the platform they were given, using their own excellence as a means to give them platform, and then using that platform to speak out on behalf of Black people and coming under intense criticism for that. That, look, Tommy Smith loved his country, loves his country. He just wanted a gold medal. And yet it spoke to this contradiction we often have, where we celebrate the achievements of Black athletes, Black politicians, Black writers, Black whomever, but we want them to shut up. We don't want them to be too Black. We don't want them to talk about the things that are facing them or things that frustrate them. And so it was fascinating talking to Tommy because he, while what happened to him happened you know, more than 50 years ago, It's the kind of thing that still resonates thematically with what we're seeing across the country today as we have our current conversations uh, about everything going on. Yeah. And and given we're just 24 hours away from people heading to the polls on Election Day, where do you see the movement for Black Lives and the struggle for racial justice going in the next few weeks, next few months, years? Well, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in this election. I think that you're likely to see some intensifying in one direction or the other. One thing that we know from our reporting on these issues is that about three people get shot and killed by the police each day. That hasn't stopped. That hasn't slowed. That there are still case after case after case. When we finish up speaking, I'm heading to Philadelphia, where there have been protests in the streets around the latest police shooting there. And so we know that if we want to live in a world where the police don't kill people, which a lot of people say they want, be the activists to the police, right? Well, we'd like a world where there's the least amount of violence possible. There are still pretty drastic things that have to change about our society and about our criminal justice system. And no matter who's elected president, I don't think we're there yet. And or we're, we're not there yet. I don't have to couch that. We're clearly not there yet. And so I would expect this movement to continue to grow. I think it's going to be fascinating as additional young people, uh, when you look at the polling, the youngest set of adults, no matter their partisan affiliation, tend to agree on these issues. That this is a set of issues that if, you, if you've if you grown up in this moment, in this Black Lives Matter moment, you understand there are issues with the police. That the holdouts are typically older and conservative. And so what we're seeing is we are going to see eventually a sea change around some of these issues, as well as other issues, climate change, guns, where young Americans have a relative consensus around uh, around what should happen. 
And, and, and so it's going to be fascinating to see what the next four years might hold as it relates to this. Either a president who is reelected, who continues not to take some of these concerns particularly seriously, or a president who has said he will take these concerns seriously, and now there will be a question about what he actually does, how quickly he actually moves, and if that's enough. You know, we can't forget that Black Lives Matter began with a black president, that Barack Obama was president when Trayvon Martin was killed, when Michael Brown was killed, when Oscar Grant was killed, when Eric Gardner was killed, when Sandra Bland was killed, right? And so these are issues that go far beyond our partisan politics, and it's not about swiping out one person for another. They speak to actual systems and structures within our country and what might need to be fixed and changed about them. For our last question, Wesley, what's your message to voters as they hit the polls tomorrow? You know, I think the voting is really, really important. We live in a country where we get to have a say in how our country works, how our laws operate. And that's not true of everyone. That's not true everywhere. And by the way, if you are a person who has access to the polls and can get there, there are many people who cannot and do not. And, and so it's important. But beyond that, I would also say we pay a lot of attention to the top of the ticket on issues I cover, criminal justice um, and justice issues broadly. These local races are among the most important things that, that happen. Who you elect your prosecutor, who you elect as your judges are among some of the most important decisions that are made in our criminal justice system. And I think that that messaging has gotten across a little bit in recent years, but I think that's something that's important for us to remember, how, how key and how crucial it is to remember that uh, it's not just the president, it's not just the senators, it's not just the member of Congress, that all of those other races down the ticket are extremely determinant in the, the country that we live in, how it operates and what it looks like. And so we need to remember that and be engaged on those issues. Thank you for that reminder. All politics are local. So the name of the project, again, is More Than a Vote, Our Voices, Our Vote. And our listeners will include a link in the notes for the show. You can access it on Audible. And Wesley Lowry, thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Wesley. All right, Jen, this is our last episode before November 3rd, Election Day. And back in August, Jen Psaki made an interesting point from the point of view of a Democratic strategist about the role of social media in the election. Let's listen. A lot of how Trump and his team will be communicating with these people, we won't see because so much of it will happen on Facebook and platforms where all of us are not the targets. It's almost like it's an, a dark underbelly of this whole campaign because it's not like we're waiting for the Willie Horton ad on TV, although, you know, there could be whatever. But like this is all happening, communicating, engaging with the, the QAnon folks, QAnon plus people who don't even know they're QAnon is happening in social media platforms where the algorithms are driving growth and driving resharing. But you and I won't see it. We won't even necessarily know about it. So, Jen, as someone who studies and teaches this for a living, what do you see happening on social media in the final days of this campaign that the general public may not be aware of? Well, I think this notion of a dark underbelly is very real. And one thing we have seen for three years, the three-year anniversary was just last week of QAnon, is that it does exist. And it's wild that 
QAnon was able to thrive on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube for so long. And a lot of people did not know about it. I mean, it kind of started getting reported really this past summer in more outlets like the New York Times or Washington Post, because you also don't want to amplify it. It grew so big. And a lot of the reason was because of the pandemic. I think a lot of people are online. They're scrolling and going down the rabbit holes of YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, all of the social media that we consume. And all these algorithms, we know, as I've spoken in in other episodes, algorithms are feeding us a lot of this misinformation. And you kind of get trapped and sucked in. So there is that component, like the conspiracy land component, but there's also memes. I mean, we heard Professor Linville from Clemson talking about the spicy memes that are really making the rounds. And I think it's absolutely right. These are things that a lot of people aren't seeing, but we are, as researchers, seeing these. We're seeing them just grow. And as we're just hours away from people hitting the polls, they're going to continue to grow and even for weeks after continue to grow. So this is a problem we face for a very long time, but it's amping up, especially as we get closer to the actual election day. All right, Katie. So in a previous episode, you said I couldn't turn the tables again and put you in the hot seat, but fair is fair. And truly, the legal world is something you know and break down so well for us non-lawyers. So my little reporter heart has to ask you a few things, too. Deal? (laughs) Yes, fine. (laughs) Fine. So last week, the Supreme Court barred the counting of mail-in ballots in Wisconsin that arrive after Election Day. That was a case that Democrats expected to lose. But a concurring opinion by Justice Kavanaugh set off alarms among civil rights and Democratic Party lawyers. So Justice Kavanaugh wrote that Election Day mail-in deadlines were devised, quote, to avoid the chaos and suspicions of impropriety that can ensue if thousands of absentee ballots flow in after Election Day and potentially flip the results of an election, unquote. He asked those states also want to be able to definitively announce the results of the election on election night or as soon as possible thereafter. Talk a little bit about the ruling, how it relates to Bush v. Gore, why civil rights lawyers are so alarmed, and what it could mean for legal challenges this week and beyond this week. Right. So there is a lot to this case, and there are a lot of similar cases that have cropped up on the Supreme Court's docket over the summer and in these final days leading up to the election. In fact, they're still happening as we speak, and they very likely will continue to happen. I'm not sure Election Day is going to be a Rubicon that we cross and every case before it is not going to be relevant anymore. I think we're going to continue to see these cases. But Wisconsin was a big one for a few reasons. This decision came out about an hour before the Senate voted to confirm Justice Amy Coney Barrett. So the makeup of the court in this case was eight justices. Now there are nine justices, and we don't really know how Barrett would act going forward. But let's talk about this case in particular. What happened was a federal judge, a district court judge, so the lowest level of federal courts, issued a ruling that said that Wisconsin could count absentee ballots that were postmarked by Election Day and received by November 9th. So a six-day extension of the deadline under state law that requires absentee voters to return their ballots by the day of the election in order to be counted. And so the Supreme Court 
heard this case, the reason why Wisconsin officials and why the court did this is obviously related to COVID. There are concerns about the mail getting there on time, people being able to receive their ballots and get them back in. And so this was kind of like an emergency COVID response for the state. All of these states are trying to figure out how to deal with COVID. So the court issued that order saying we can count these ballots six days later. The second level of courts, the appellate courts, said, nope, not sure about that. We're going to stay that order. We're going to pause it. And then it went up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, no go. They said that that was improper for the district court judge to do that and overturned it, basically. And so that six-day extension is no longer in place in the state of Wisconsin. And the general idea, Democrats are saying, look, if ever there was a time for us to do things like this at the last minute, COVID is it, a national pandemic, a global pandemic. And the GOP response to that is COVID doesn't give federal courts this authority to rewrite state election laws. And so really kind of protecting these states and their their ability to, to be sovereign and run their own elections. That's going to be what all of these cases come down to is there are kind of three players here, federal courts, state courts, and these state legislatures. And state legislatures always make up the rules for how their elections go. It's what the Constitution tells them that they have to do and that they get to do. And there are going to be questions about whether or not they're messing with the election too soon before the election, if they're confusing voters, which, frankly, I think we can all agree voters are confused in various states at this point. So this Wisconsin case was a big deal because— a couple of reasons. You pointed out Justice Kavanaugh's opinion and what Justice Kavanaugh did in his opinion is he basically said that the Constitution kind of requires federal courts, so the the federal government, to make sure that state courts aren't rewriting these election laws. So kind of federal courts are putting their hand in the state court candy jar, so to speak, to make sure that they're not messing things up. And that's a that's a big clash of constitutional powers in our system. It's really the federal versus the state. And we're talking about elections here, which is the bread and butter of our democracy and states getting to decide that for themselves and courts at the federal level kind of intervening there. And that idea that Kavanaugh spoke about comes from Bush v. Gore, And it's an opinion that hasn't been cited except for once in a dissent by Justice Thomas. And so the fact that Kavanaugh embraced that thinking in his opinion is a pretty big deal. And it also kind of implies that federal courts will be able to kind of get involved here in a way that the Supreme Court has not really sanctioned before. And I'll I'll leave you with kind of a final parting thought from a lot of the court watchers and folks that that pay attention to this stuff. Justice Roberts is really the linchpin here. Like I said, the court has been hearing a lot of these cases, and they've gone both ways on it. They've sided with the GOP. They've sided with Democrats. They've said some COVID response mechanisms are okay. Late counts are okay. Some are not. And it all comes down to actually what Roberts believes, because he's been the swing vote, so to speak, in these cases, siding with the conservatives or siding with the liberals. And he believes that federal courts have no business getting involved with state elections, state legislatures, and the rules that states make to govern themselves and elect their representatives. He does believe that state courts, for example, the Florida Supreme Court or the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, They're 
experts and very good at interpreting their own state constitutions. So he feels more deferential to state courts interpreting these state election laws. And so that's kind of how it's gone. When he sided with COVID changes, it's usually when a state Supreme Court or the state election officials say, this is necessary. When he strikes them down, it's because federal courts are kind of overreaching their hand in the candy jar and messing things up and getting involved in state processes. And it's kind of clashing in the federalism system that we have. But now that we have a Justice Barrett, Robert's opinion, I'm not sure matters that much. We don't really have eyes on exactly how she's going to rule, but we know she's in the Scalia school of thought. She says you won't get a Justice Scalia, you'll get a Justice Barrett, but we kind of know how she thinks about things and that she leans more conservatively than several members of the bench, including Justice Roberts. And so whereas Roberts has kind of been this linchpin here, I'm not sure that's going to be the case going forward for any kind of challenge that we see before Tuesday and after Tuesday. That's a long-winded way of answering the question, but that's kind of that's kind of where things stand. Yeah. And it still kind of gets to that point, though, that you made with Wesley, that all politics are local, right? That we still, a lot of these states are making these decisions. A lot of times we are seeing Supreme Court jump in. But when we do vote, it is important not to just go down the ticket and not know who those names are. Those local elections really matter. And I think a lot of this drives to that point as well. Right. I mean, our whole system is a democratic republic. We elect those that represent us, and we do so at a state level governed by our state legislature and state election laws. And so to even get to a functioning democratic republic, we have to have functioning state-level elections. And those are what are coming under scrutiny and challenge during this pandemic. Fascinating stuff. Well, thank you. Thanks for letting me put you on the hot seat again. (laughs) (laughs) Always fun. I study up. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, too. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. And for our listeners, if you have not voted yet, first, thanks for listening. But now, go vote. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.